Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Reese Show, where we interview experts to help you understand where technology is headed and how it will impact society as a whole and also your daily life. Thanks so much for learning with us and enjoy the episode. Hello. Today, I chat with Hollis Robbins, who is the new Dean of Humanities at the University of Utah. And I went in just because I was like, wow, pinging her on Twitter. She seems like she's doing smart stuff. It's actually, she's she's thinking in a really smart way about the world and how how to scaffold students' learning, how to how knowledge production works, and also how technology, how the humanities of the the past and the in, in the nineteenth century can still inform the future of technology in, in the present. And so it's a really cool conversation. I totally recommend you check it out, especially if you're interested in you know, how humanities can make us understand our present moment and also how we as a society can do knowledge production. So hope you enjoy this episode with Hollis and bye. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Reese Show. I'm Reese, the co-founder of Root, and this is my world. I believe the century is a turning point in human history, and I'm here to help you navigate it. I hope you come away with a new understanding of the scientific, technological, and societal trends that are poised to radically reshape our world and how you can work with those trends to become a live player in building a solar punk future. And today, to dive into all of that, I'm excited to chat with Hollis Robbins. Hollis is the incoming Dean of Humanities at the University of Utah, and she's written a variety of excellent books on African-American literature. She's also one of these really interesting, curious Twitter people. So Hollis, thanks for being on the show and welcome. I'm delighted to have this conversation. Yeah, and, and Hollis and I were jamming a bit beforehand, and I got, you know, I kind of, I knew... Hollis was smart just off of like who follows her and kind of some of the things that she's saying. But even just in the beginning bits of uh, our conversation, the five minutes before the show, it's like, oh, this is going to be exciting. So I think I think the goal for listeners just to give in the goal all Hollis for you to kind of put into our minds is like we're trying to get the listeners to understand how you think about organizational systems and how society kind of systematizes and organizes information and other things. And then also, I think to do this mapping, um, you know so much about the 19th century is to kind of map the 19th century and the post office and the telegram and all that into the 21st century to get some kind of learnings there. So with that, maybe Hollis, let's just start with, um, let's actually start with, you know, how you think about that mapping actually between the 19th century and the 21st century. What are some of the key things that we can learn from the 19th century to apply to today? Excellent. Well, first of all, I, I love the way you, you put it in terms of organizational systematizing. And what is it that we all agree on, right? And one of the things that we all agree on is that today is June 14th, right? And that it is 310 Pacific time and 610 where I am in New York, right? Well, that actually took a world conference, in the 1880s, right, which was uh, the universal, I, th I tweeted about it the other day, the, I think the universal uh, conference on setting the prime meridian and deciding when the day was going to start, right? So prior to that, towns had a sundial and that there was some sort of organization on what the day was and, and what the calendar was. But the history of humankind, at least in the Western tradition, is a big history over what day it is. Right, we've got your and what time it is. You've got your Gregorian calendar, you've got your Julian calendar, you've got your Jewish calendar, you've got all sorts of calendars. Right now, pretty much around the world, we have general agreement on what day it is. That's a 19th century phenomenon. And even Great. a question like when uh, w that the day starts at midnight instead of the day starting at noon or at eight in the morning. Right. Yeah. Like for me, like my day actually starts at like 530 or six in the morning when I get up, but it started at midnight. But that took a global agreement. And Whoa. one of the things that that I find so interesting about the 19th century is all of these global agreements. There's postal agreements. There were agreements uh, about, you know, border disputes. Of course, there was uh, dis agreements about universal pitch. So your A, your concert A, right? If you're a musician at all, you want to know what your A is the same A as everybody else, right? And there was a universal agreement about that. And, you know, so as we go into new technologies and have some agreements about, uh, you know, uh, about crypto, you know, or about anything else, right? That there needs to be agreements on what is what. And all of this, this, impulse was very much a 19th century impulse. 
Love it. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's also, it's one of those funny things where it's like, we are just born into this world, but we never take a second to challenge it. We're like, like, oh, why is midnight the start of the day? Exactly. Right. You know what? We should start, we should start a revolution. We should say to start (laughs) at 4 a.m. and we're the 4 a.m.ers and like, it'll be better for XYZ reason and we'll kind of start a movement. But that's interesting. Do you think it was do you think it was a function in the 19th century? Was it a function of globalization or was it a function of kind of like industrial revolution, like Taylorism style stuff? Or what was it a function of? Well, it's a great question. And the the, the most important, the most pressing reason was the trains, was the railways. Yeah. You could deal with sort of uh, disputes about time and date in a sort of general way. You'd be a little late, whatever. But when two trains are coming down the same track, in opposite directions, you want everybody to be literally on the same page in terms of time. And so the big impetus, in it was globalization, yes, and in sort of a universalizing impulse, but it was primarily to stop trains from crashing. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I kind of, I remember that as part of the reason why, I guess it was like maybe standard time in general, but also in the United States, where it's like, okay, we get these time zones, and those right. zones are a way to say, okay, this train is leaving at this. And when you come over here, you can't just, it's like, no, no, no. 1 p.m. over here is going to be 2 p.m. over there. And the train's going to be going this way at 1.30 p.m. Is there a, I guess one interesting piece of that is there's kind of uh, this the, the um, standardization process that needs to happen for kind of atoms and, and um, like trains moving around. But then there's also the standardization process of like bits and the telegraph and things like that. And so is that... How is that? Because um, those are mo- it's yeah, it's kind of like a different kind of problem. Well, it's a similar problem, and I, and I was thinking about um, uh, the various electricity uh, conferences that started in the eighteen eighties as well. What is an amp? What is a volt? Right? What are ohms? Sort of the make sure yeah. that everybody's got this sort of same definition. And even though we are still like way off, and that you've got to travel with a whole bunch of plugs to plug into things when you travel in Europe and Asia and what have you, at least we have a general idea of current, mm-hmm. right? And that there has been agreement on that. And right now, I think the agreement had just been made on um, USB C. So mm-hmm. the USB port, right? So that instead of littering our, uh, filling our landfills with all sorts of different plugs and dongles. And I, you know, lived through the last couple of decades that to plug your Mac into your university's, you know, AV system, you needed a whole million, like a Swiss army life of dongles, right? That's because there hadn't been standardization. So it's still an impulse that we need. Um, but this idea that we could all get together and it was great. And let me link this to, to literature for a second yeah. and, and how I, as a sort of a literature professor, um, was interested in this um, for a long time. You know, if you were a school, school child in America, you read school children read the same books or the same books in high school and the same books in, in college. And, and those books were a certain kind of. Uh, standard, primarily white uh, history, um, you know, it included Tom Sawyer and it included, you know, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin and included other Hemingway if it was in the 20th century. And part of the expanding of the canon to include texts by by writers of color or or, um, uh, right women um, was a matter of expanding the canon. And the the concern um, and the reason that there has been sort of a pushback in it from this part of this is this 19th century idea that we should all be doing the same thing. We should all be on the same page. And this fragmentation that we're going through right now, this era of no borders, everybody does their own thing, individuation, substack instead of a newspaper, for example, right, is a kind of fragmentation where the general ethos of the day is everybody do their own thing, not everybody doing the same thing. And so part of what I've been interesting and in, 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 in tweeting about is this this movement outwards for individual atomization, everybody doing their own thing versus this precedent. And I think we're coming back to a precedent, uh, coming back to this uh, impulse of everybody getting on the same page. Love it. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, I mean, two pieces there. Yeah, one, it's, yeah, it's just a reminder of how 
man, the the 19th century was crazy in that all the freaking, you know, um, trains were being made. And at the end, you know, cars were being made. And then in the next century, you know, like, you know, planes. And then all the freaking electricity was happening and all of the telegraphs and stuff. And then we were kind of linked up in this whole big world. So that was a crazy time. And yeah, it's necessary to kind of have those, I guess, yeah, the, the, the train thing, I guess, to link back to that for one second, I think the difference between the atoms and the bits is that the the bits need to be standard across the entire world, mm-hmm. while the atoms can be just standard for a given region at the beginning. Like you yes. can have like um, train standards, but then once you get like in the 1970s with the um, uh, shipping container uh, standard, mm-hmm. that's like, oh, once we have global trade, then we need like a full, full like atoms standard for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um and then going to your point, though, about applying this to the modern day, and yeah, we're in this, you know, the, oh, the, the fragmented um, uh, present with the internet, which is true, which is, you know, everybody just has their own specific Twitter feed, and it's like, it is what it is. How do you think, how do you see that kind of um, re-standardization uh, happening? Well, it's, it's um, and thank you for get, letting me kind of go far afield and then no, coming back to it, yeah, because yeah, it's, it. it's these impulses are not just in technology, they're in culture as well, is, is kind of the point I want to make, right? So like, if I, I don't know whether you're old enough to remember, you know, a TV show like MASH. Right? <laughs> no right? of it, didn't watch it, but no of it, yeah. So the last episode of MASH was something like, you know, every household around the country, you know, tuned in to watch that. And there's a couple of other things, like uh, the last um, of the Sopranos episode was another one like that, right? Is that there was these moments where everybody was doing the same thing. Now, because of streaming, because of binge watching, right? Even when we're all watching the same thing, right? Like even if it's watching a TikTok, TikTok is not tethered to time, right? So we're not always watching the TikTok at the same time. So this fragmentation, both in culture and in technology and in how, um, seems like, right, it seems like it is the the mode of the day. But at the same time, um, as we said about, we have this agreement about time, we have this agreement about email. Um, Let me move to a second of what we assume about standardization too. When you send me an email, or I send you an email, maybe we don't get it, maybe it goes to our junk mail, but it comes, right? It doesn't go to your neighbor. (laughs) Yeah. Right. There's a sort of sense of individuation and trust in our uh, electronics, in our communication with each other. So we're living at this time where what we agree and trust in terms of standardization is very much at odds with the fact that we're all doing this things at a different time. So there's a tension, I think, underlying one of the sort of fragmentations or concerns about about the current day. Um we're not coming to agreement about things and we're not coming to agreement at the same time in things. We're not all going to church on Sunday. We're not uh, taking classes at the same time, watching TV at the same time, watching a movie at the same time. Yeah. How do you think, I think that mostly, and I guess, yeah, it's like a thing where it's like back in the day or in, in the stat that I remember is like something about like Elvis Presley going on the um, Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan show, show uh-huh. in 1968 or 1958 or whatever had it, it was like it was something like 80 percent of all TV watchers watched that. It was like a crazy amount. Um, and uh, but today, but the interesting thing is one thing I might. Well, I, let me ask two questions. The first is, how do you think? So you're saying that like something like email and built on top of SMTP, simple mail transfer protocol. It's like, yes, we have this thing that allows us to connect with each other. Um, and I guess the like were you saying that we exist in this reality now where we trust the kind of protocols that allow us to send things, but we don't Mm -hmm. all come together around the stuff that's built on top of them? Is that kind of what you're saying? Or we forget about it, as you're Mm -hmm. saying, right? We assume this building, we assume and trust it the same way we, when you just said, I, you know, hadn't thought about why the day starts at 4am and could we do something about this, right? That, that we are, we've built our existence upon agreements to do things at the same time with each other in accordance in, in accord with each other, knowing the same things, even as we're seeking or people are seeking to be atomized about it. Mm. Um, And it's, I guess what I mean to say is I spend a lot of time thinking about this and asking people about 
like let's just say alphabetization, right? You're taught the alphabet when you're little and you know, still things are alphabetized and organized alphabetically and we have agreement about that. And how do we think about those agreements at the same time? It's like, get rid of your newspaper and go on Substack and we don't need any agreement about anything. Mm -hmm. And it is a, a mm -hmm. kind of impulse um, for statelessness, yeah. anonymity, pseudonymity. Yeah. You know, we don't need nation states anymore. <laughs> yeah. We can exist in the metaverse. Yeah. We don't yeah. even need, you know, you don't need college anymore. Yeah. We're yeah. going yeah. to have this, you know, meta utopia crypto, yeah. <laughs> you know, wonderful yeah. thing where none of the old establishment yeah. institutions matter. Yes, 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 yes. No, love. That's, that's, it. I think that's a good frame, which is that, yeah, the, all of the agreements. There are some things that we all still agree on, like when the day starts and when the alphabet starts uh, or the alphabet, but the things that we used to agree on, which is like everybody in the nation like gets on and watches the show at the same time. Now we're in the mode where it's like, no, everybody, it's a free for all, like do whatever you want. And like we, the goal is to kind of, um, but and I, do you see, how do you think then about like the current thing um, in the sense <laughs> that's like we have um, the current thing may be uh, Ukraine, and then it may be, um, you know, it was, you know, BLM, it may be MAGA, it may be uh, the current, I don't know, the, the current thing is currently being battled over. It was Roe v. Wade for a bit, right. of course. Um, how do you think about, or Uvalde is probably the most recent one. Right. Because um, how how, in my mind, to some extent, the kind of availability cascades that are happening there is a connection to, um, that is kind of a standard that we're all aligning on. It's like, let's talk about the current thing. Right. And that's the desire. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what I that's what I um, thank you for sort of pulling us back to that. That's the desire. There's a desire for us all to be on the same page. And if we're not going to be on the same page and watching something at the same time, if we're not going to be on the same page in agreeing um, on sort of fundamental principles of democracy or non-democracy or recycling or important, you know, important issues of the day, climate change, right? Of your list of things that are the current thing, uh, climate change policy, right, is never going to be a current thing. It'll be a current thing when there's a disaster, like with um, what's happening right now in Yellowstone, yeah. right? But once upon a time, you know, there would have been, you know, individuals coming together, in a small town, you know, to, I don't know when the last time was you participated in local politics, maybe the recent recall election, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh, yeah. But that, that the being on the same page or the current thing would have been local, mm -hmm. wouldn't have been international, right? Yeah. Because, or national. And one of the things about Twitter is it has no borders. Doesn't matter that you're in a different time zone than I am, right? But our local politics, who takes out our trash, right? who is policing the local elementary school, any of those things require a local getting together. And that I think is where, where you're not seeing the current thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I love that. I think that that's true. And I think that, yeah, it's just like, it's quote unquote, the nationalization of politics or whatever, where it's like, all that matters right. is like everybody contributing to um, <laughs> the random Texas Democratic dude, whose name I'm forgetting right now. It's like, they're all contributing to his um, Democratic campaign because it had, right. um, but then it actually didn't move the needle on that at all or whatever. So I think there's a, it makes me think of a little bit of like some of the work actually that we're doing at Root is with this project called Tweetscape, which looks at um, the Twitter community clusters and then is like mm -hmm. prioritizes the top information from a community cluster. And so you can kind of like look at the current thing for a given community cluster. Mm -hmm. And so that might be some of this like new re-standardization of like what people are talking about or what people should be talking about. Do you see other, or in your mind, you know, you know, what kinds of things like, is this a should question of like some things that we should be doing to like realign around better um, kind of agreements that we have on the internet? Like, would you like to see more of that? Well, it's a, that's a good question. So let me start by, let me answer by going around back to one of the things I did in preparation for this, uh, for our conversation is I looked at your Goodreads, right? Nice. And nice. I looked at, first of all, you have excellent taste. Thank you, thank you, um, and thank you. you, you seem like I saw Sapiens and I saw, you know, all sorts of interesting books about 
people about and I would say sapiens beings. let me just claim sapiens plus plus just so, so I don't get because <laughs> sapiens is like anybody anybody's like brother who's like kind who like you yeah, know yeah. is kind of into coding like red sapiens but like I sapiens the, the double doubting on sapiens you know okay it's an awesome yeah. any book, case but, any but, case but, any case any case thank you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I just it was the one that was in my head but, oh totally, but I totally. saw it was there were so many books about human beings. So it seemed to me that what you were trying to do was you're trying to understand us. Like, yeah. how did we go from whatever pre-evolutionary, pre-neolithic, hunter-gatherer, whatever societies to SMPT? <laughs> I don't even know the, you know, to, to having us all agree that this is a time and place and we're sending each other emails. Like, how did that happen? And I'm interested in the same question. So I knew we'd have a good conversation about that. Um, there's a desire for connection. And I don't know. I didn't see Darwin's Origin of Species on that book. I, I haven't read it. I haven't read it. Oh, it's, my God. You need to read it. Is it good? Yeah. I, I, it's funny because I think yeah, I, I, I'm a little bit under-indexed on some of the older books like Origin of Species or some older ones that were written in the – and you've written, read, read lots of books from the 1800s. And honestly, you know, actually, let's do a little quick aside for a second. Okay. If you were to recommend, let's call it three books from the 1800s for people to read <laughs> – what would you read? Because you've actually read so many from the 1800s. I've read essentially zero. So, you know, okay. three. well, I would definitely read your origin of species, yeah. right? It's such an important book. I would pick something by Freud, and I'm not sure which one. And that kind of bleeds into the 20th century, not the 19th century. But but I'd read I'd read some Freud. Um, and I'd read Uncle Tom's Cabin which is a complicated book, but a really interesting book that captures the zeitgeist of this right before the Civil War and is an interesting book for understanding what America was. It's probably, or I'll take that back. Let's replace that with Moby Dick. Okay, okay. Have you read Moby Dick? I haven't. No. Oh, geez. no. You, you need I to know. Read I don't. Yeah, let's Moby read. Dick. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of. I have a long reading list. You're giving me a reading list, Hollis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Actually, let me let me say this is why you should read Moby Dick. Yeah. Moby Dick is about how is it that this because you know the basic story, right? Yeah, yeah. Ishmael, this guy that's in a bad mood, he decides to get on this whaling ship. It's got this crazy Captain Ahab. Ahab's got a missing leg because this whale, uh, Moby Dick, has bitten it off and he wants to get him back, right? So how is it in 1850, right? It would be possible because it was for a ship captain to actually steer his boat on a collision course with one particular whale. Because even if it's fiction, what Melville does is show with the, with the science of the time, with what we knew about whale uh, migration patterns, with what we knew about trade winds, with what he knew about whale behavior, with what the technology was for whaling at the time, it was eminently possible. That's friggin' organization, right? And so you come away with that and why there was a market in whale oil and what people were using the whale oil for and how umbrellas were being made with whale, with the baleen from like whalebone, right? Yeah. And this entire history of the 1850s or the 1840s to, to 50 is there in this book, all of the market and all of the science that would allow Ahab to meet up with Moby Dick again. That's yeah. what that book is about. No, that's a that's a good pitch, and I think and I think overall it just makes me think. So yeah, that one, and then Origin of Species. I mean, I think they're these crucial. I think that yeah, it just makes me think that like right. I guess um, yeah, right now I'm I'm writing this book on what information wants, and a lot. But it is funny because I think a lot of the stuff that I read is from definitely 1950 or after 1970 or after and i think and everybody always tells me hey, you got to read more stuff from the past but like this is this is but this is a helpful a helpful push for me to do that <laughs> and um and i think it i imagine a future actually of mine especially maybe when i'm done with the book which is like the next set of like big old readings i do is like i don't read anything from after 1950 or something and all i'm reading is like really old school stuff that it will be harder for me but i will go on that journey um you know from you so thank well, you for good. that push Yes, yeah. you definitely should do it because you should think about how it is, how is it that we, you know, again, you go to the library, you know, you're going to be able to find what you want at the library, right? Because it's going to be like Melville, comma, Herman, Moby Dick, right? Or you'll be able to find things by date because somebody had put organizational uh, systems together. Let me ask you a question. How do you organize your email in your inbox? 
Uh, I, I'm not that intense with it. I mostly just have all the newsletters go into a label that's called newsletters and I never look at them. And then all of the, um, uh, the rest of it, I just, um, I star the stuff that I want to deal with later and then just respond in time to the stuff I want to deal with now. Okay. So one of the things that, you know, once upon a time, maybe in your parents' house, they had big old file filing cabinets, right? Yeah. Right. And so you would be able to say like, you know, you're, somebody's your brother's report cards from right you would be able to go by right now how is anybody going to find their brother's report search card? i'll just search you know right yeah. and it's boolean search and yeah. you know what happens if the you know electricity goes down or somebody like it's all gone but there is a paper copy somewhere there is a paper copy probably in your school district and there is a paper and it is organized. And if you went there, you would be able to find it and download it and you would have it because those systems still exist because we can't count on the individual anymore. So, so, so I mean, yeah, I mean, that makes some sense. I think maybe coming back to like popping off the stack a little bit is I want to go back to this question of, do you think, what do you think these new, because we've done this massive defragmentation process um, with through the internet and now we're seeing some, or what do you think the new agreements should be? Or what are some of the initial things that you're starting to see that where we're starting to re, re um, align? Well, I mean, let's, let's talk about podcasts. And again, I, I don't mean just to, to talk about systematizing, but I tweeted the other day, like a major problems for the libraries, libraries going forward is how to shelve the podcasts. Now I say that kind of a joke, right? But in fact, right? You know, knowledge accumulates, right? It's not just that Shakespeare wrote some stuff. It's that decade and decade and century after century, it had an influence, right? Things don't exist in a vacuum. Moby Dick, you know, actually nobody read it for about 50, 60 years, but then everybody read it. And there's an entire library of information that has grown on top of Moby Duck. It has become a thing. And you still are able to find the original thing, right? So if somebody writes a book and nobody ever reads it, right, it's lost. And one of the things that the 19th century was very interested in was oblivion, right? Which is what happens when something is said or uttered or written or built and then disappears. You don't hear people concerned about oblivion, right? But consider oblivion for a second, mm-hmm. right? What if TikTok went away mm-hmm. and somehow nothing was ever going to be able to be saved? What would happen to all of that? Mm-hmm. Does anybody think about this? archive.org does but no one else <laughs> right but but as a species right as somebody mm-hmm. who's who who read sapiens like what we're at a point where it is quite possible that you know 99.9% of what is uttered and done and said today could disappear entirely yeah 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 i think it's interesting i think that the i think what my initial response to that is that so much of our current um information is optimized for virality rather than retention and so everything on tiktok is optimized you either you get it out there it's watched in the next 48 hours and if not it just goes into oblivion essentially because there's so much of this stuff and maybe if it's good enough it ends up on the person's top videos page um and 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 the funny thing though is i think i don't know i i i'm i'm not um i guess when i think about like yeah. So, so, and, and in some ways I'm kind of, I'm not sure if I'm fine with that. I think that for that to be a thing where it's like good stuff happens and then, but yeah, there's, there's, I mean, I do, I do want some things obviously like knowledge, like Wikipedia and for there to be a better and more robust Wikipedia in the future, that's visual and networked and all that stuff will be a good thing. Um, but I'm not sure. I think it's okay to have a lot of, I mean, I think us as a site are too over-indexed on the virality side. Um, but then we should have some, um, I think that the other weird thing though is that like, um, the folks in the 19th century were worried about oblivion, but in the 21st century stuff just kind of naturally, like, like the computer naturally holds the bits in the hard drive. And so you don't really need to worry about that much because it's going to be there. And even if it goes away, there's still like way too much information. So it's like, we kind of <laughs> lost one thing who really cares. 
Right, right. And I, I think that there's there's a way that people are struggling with this, right? Mm-hmm. And I think young pe- people particularly are struggling with this question of what what is the present? What is the future? What is the past? And where are the grownups? Where are the grownups who are supposed to tell me what was important, mm-hmm. <laughs> what is important now, and what do I need to be heading toward in the future, right? Mm-hmm. That is, if you think through, you know, um, what I started by talking about, or I was talking about origin of species and understanding of, of how we developed as human beings, you know, over millennia. And whatever structures there were, there were structures of, you know, you're born into some sort of community. People tell you things, don't touch that, don't eat this. This is how you kill that. This is how to build a house. These are the things that you should know. And you then pass those on. That kind of human interaction is, I don't hear very much about it these days, right? You stick a laptop in front of some some kid and say, and our best and the brightest are saying, let the kid explore. Don't dominate the kid with what he or she needs to know. Let the kid explore. And that's how we're going to have brilliant entrepreneurial founders. Well, that's nuts to me. Yeah. And it's nuts because, yeah, we're not, they just get on the internet and they're like, well, this is a, this is a crazy place out here. And they follow whatever <laughs> rabbit hole they're going to follow without any direction. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I super, I super agree with that. I think that there's a, um, yeah, like the old school, the old school path was kind of sad in some ways. It's like, you did your thing, you did your work and then you, you knew what you were going to do. And oh, blah, blah, blah. You're at IBM for the next 45 years. Congrats. Um, but then the new we've been you know, pushing the other way is like, okay, um, follow your passion. And what that means is there's no guardrails and you can just fall down, um, and alt right, alt left, all whatever, alt center rabbit hole. And, uh, before you know it, you're just like putting NFTs out there not actually, you know, helping anybody or whatever. <laughs> no offense to my NFT friends. Um, is that, exactly. so, so what kind of, and so is that kind of one of the, um, yeah, so providing some structures around how to help people navigate the their future in the internet or where we should go as society? Well, I spend a lot of time, again, um, uh, I was a professor for many years and am a dean. And as a dean, what a dean does is work with faculty and departments in a university, um, supporting faculty and deciding what's important for the next generation to know. Yeah. Right. So we have an excellent philosophy department full of excellent people who are studying Asian philosophy and studying uh, games, studying uh, John Stuart Mill, studying. And I kind of, you know, as a dean, what an administrator does is say is look over the sort of universe of philosophical knowledge out there and saying and supporting faculty and saying, yes, these are the kinds of things. How do I, how do we make sure this isn't lost? We have an English department. Do we have people teaching medieval? Do we have people teaching African literature? Do we have people teaching uh, Chinese literature? Do, is the entire tapestry of knowledge being maintained, supported, you know, do we need to hire more people here? Do we need to teach more classes there? Are we teaching Moby Dick enough and as both a piece of English literature, as whaling history, and as climate history, right? So for me, I feel like I have like an excellent position being interested in knowledge production and in systematizing to ensure that if a young person goes to college, or certainly goes to the University of Utah, which is an excellent place, will have knowledge organized for them in ways to say, okay, I understand what I might need. And this is how I would uh, go about, you know, searching for my, uh, supporting my passion, but also getting a degree. I don't know. And I find interesting um the efforts to do this outside a university system. Now you've been you've been um involved or affiliated with the universities and also not. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, I, I taught blockchain ethics at the MIT Media Lab for a bit, but I do not have a uh, I just have a bachelor's in computer science. I don't have a PhD or anything. It's all good. Um and but how do you see the relationship yeah. with the function of the universities? And 
outside the university? Yeah, good question. I think I think there's two ways I want to go with that. Well, first, I want to say, A, I think you, your frame on how to be a dean of humanities is really cool. And that seems correct. Just like, here's all the ecosystem of knowledge that uh, exists and which stuff should we prioritize and how can we give students a, a path um, to help them like understand the cool stuff that happened, you know, for the last, you know, like 300,000 years or whatever you want to call it. And um, to understand that so that they can take it forward with their life and, and live a better life um, or push forward the, the boundaries of that knowledge production, uh, either or. Um, I think when I think about that for what's worth, before going to your question about how universities should interact with um, uh, self-learning, I guess they're, they're kind of the same question, though, which is, I think for me, if I were to want to give, a, like, I didn't really do well in school, like school was not really a thing that I was into. Um, I think because so much of it, there are two kinds of learners I've heard, or so, I don't know. There's like macro learners who like want to see the big picture and then fit everything into it. And then there are people who like the specifics and then like build up the macro picture from that. And I think so much of school was about all the specifics. And so when I was like going and doing stuff, I was like, okay, cool. I'm in this class on geology or, you know, the history of the slave trade in West Africa or whatever. And it was all so it's specific in your first primary sources and all this stuff. And it's just like, I'm just like, but how does this connect to like, the big picture where it's like, you know, something I wanted to hear was like, oh, and I think, you know, the, the triangle trade is like a good example of this or how mm-hmm. drugs moved and there's tobacco and there's opium and there was alcohol and rum. And, and so I think for me, when I imagine, I think also part of it, you know, and maybe this is me giving you unsolicited advice here on how no, to do great. your teen of humanities job. But I think um, it's like, if you can get with, if you can create within students, obviously it's like the classic desi- loving to learn and the self-reinforcing feedback loop that helps them but I think honestly, one of the best things that you could do is like help them. And for me, it's, 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 you know, getting excited, going to Goodreads, knowing how to find the best books on Goodreads, knowing how to go to YouTube and find amazing stuff on YouTube and going to Wikipedia and finding amazing stuff on Wikipedia. And then after you do all those things and the goal should not be, for me, it's not about more knowledge production. You know, I think we have so much knowledge production, but it's about knowledge curation and also how it will impact your own life, you know, and what you're doing in the world. And so I think if you can learn wisdom from the past, go for it. But if you want to like learn about the history of the, you know, West African slave trade to like do more knowledge production, that should be only for a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of, of students. Um, so that's kind of my thing. But I think the key point there for me is that some primary sources are good, but I think overall I would want. 90% of the time to be on, you know, 30% YouTube, 30% Wikipedia, 30%, um, you know, Goodreads books, and then 10% like, like academic articles. <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually a very healthy way to think about it, right? I mean, universities are needed, like, I feel like my life or my, my, my passion, as it were, or my profession is pushing back against uh, oblivion, mm. right? Um, and like the biggest, one of the biggest disasters, you know, the, the destruction of the library of Alexandria and all the knowledge that was lost there, all the texts that were, you know, utterly lost that are in oblivion now. Right. And, and it, and what universities can do are make sure that there are disciplinary roots that, you know, people, we have somebody who knows their Shakespeare. Right. And then we have people in the film program, which is in a different school, who are going to be making movies and Netflix that are sort of take Shakespeare themes and are making something new and, you know, in a different kind of school or who are Teal Fellows and, and Hamlet or some, you know, some sort of funny mashup like that, right? So we need both. We need what happens inside the university and we need what, what you were describing, right? The kind of porous borders that bring the knowledge that can only be produced in a kind of hothouse environment where somebody spends 15 years on a book. And then we need those sort of ambassadors to the real world uh, where to say, and I think your Goodreads uh, page was an example of, of sitting at the border, taking these books and saying, you know, this is how they could be useful to you or to me. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think, I think there's, um, the other thing I'd say is I might even not use the term. I mean, I think pushing back against oblivion is one. Okay. It's a pretty good frame, but I think the frame that I might actually push for is something like, and people have this with free speech on the internet where it's like, Oh, it's either free speech or censorship. It's like, no, no, no. It's really about friction and free reach and how much friction is put around things. And so I think, you know, instead of pushing back against oblivion, I would say something like, I, you know, you could call it like pushing back against the feed or something like that, where it's like what you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to help because stuff to be in oblivion or not oblivion. It almost doesn't matter if this random thing exists down here, deep down the thing. It's like, what is the curatorial path to help mm-hmm. students find 
the juiciest stuff in the shortest amount of time that actually helps them learn it. Um, and I think that like, you know, you call it pushing or pushing forward towards like a scaffolding, like, like, you know, mm-hmm. scaffolding maximalists or something. I don't know. Um, right. I wanna, uh, you go and then I think we want to, I want to transition topics to tech and sci-fi, but yeah, go for Excellent. it. Excellent. No, well, I think scaffolding is, you know, again, that's what uh, scaffolding is a kind of uh, a physical manifestation of systematizing and organizing, right? And we talk about learning as a kind of ladder and a scaffolding. You learn this, you learn this, you learn that. Um, And thinking about scaffolding as a kind of organizational theory, which is, you know, how we get at the library. But it's also in terms of, you think about a calendar system as scaffolding time, right? And, you know, you've Mm -hmm. got your months and your days and your years, and you're dividing things up into, you know, and who depends on what and what depends on you know, what came before that, that systematizing itself and that impulse is also pushing back against oblivion and chaos. It is to say, let us organize our universe. Let us organize our knowledge um, because that's the only way we're going to be actually talking to each other. Exactly. Yeah. Let's, yeah, exactly. I like, yeah, yeah. That seems, um, uh, that seems, and let me actually, while we're still on, I, before going to sci-fi and tech, just while, while I have you, I think the other thing that I would just want to shill to you is like the, um, do you do much, do you do spaced repetition or on key stuff ever? Do you a know what I mean bit. by that? I know uh, yeah. a little bit about sort of the memory. The memory stuff. I just, yeah. I guess for me personally, when I think about oblivion, I, you can essentially imagine my life in two f- forms from age zero through 30. I was technically learning stuff. I learned about geology and sedimentary rocks, and I learned about, well, you know, uh, you know, something about chemistry when I was in fifteen. But really, and it, part of this is my own brain, but I think it's a lot of kids' brain. It goes in my brain and out the, uh, you know, in my brain stays there for maybe a week or two, and then until the test, and then it leaves. And so, but on key is this way to kind of study uh it's a note card application to like increase your memory and so like oblivion there's oblivion of of information in the outside world and knowledge out there but there's also oblivion in your mind mm-hmm. and i think that um if there was a way that you were able to get your for me it's a total i just i started it for i did it for chinese in the past but now i do it for all these books i read and stuff and so it's like it actually gets into my mind wow. and so if you were able to have some experiments at University of Utah where you had people doing spaced repetition and actually making a habit of it for the rest of their lives. That for me is like the most anti-oblivion thing that I can imagine. I love that. I love that. And I know I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce his right last name right. Andy. Matushak. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So he and I did a um, did a Zoom to talk about some of yes, this great. work about a couple of years ago. Yeah. Because yeah. we follow each other on Twitter and that's like, he's just said, he was... He had written some piece that was anti-book. He says, we're going to get rid of all books. And I'm like, yeah, no. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, we had, we sort of, I mean, it was a friendly, uh, yeah. friendly conversation. But yeah, he is so bright and so smart. And I'm, I'm so glad to know that that's been helpful to you. Yeah. Um, I think it takes a certain kind of diligence um, to go back to, to uh, um Darwin and Origin of Species and sort of and your work or your reading and how human beings are the way the way they are. I think a fundamental understanding of human beings is how friggin' varied we are, right? Yeah. And there will be people who want to know things and there will be people who want things to stay in their brain. There are yeah. people who want to stay up late. There are people who want to go to bed early and get up early. There are people who want to be nice. There are people who want to be shits, yeah. right? There are all of these things. And part of organization is ways that we can all be on the same page about something, even you know, with all the people that hate each other on Twitter right now, Everybody agrees it's June 15th yeah. or 14th or whatever. Right? Whatever today is, who knows? Whatever yeah. today is, right? And yeah. forgetting those fundamental agreements. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, I think, um, uh, yes, yeah, so A, I'll be excited. I'll, I'll send you some pieces on my how I do my Anki process and stuff. Excellent. And if you're able to like Please. do it with the kids, yeah. that would be amazing. I would, I would love honestly, that. that Thank would you. Make yeah, me no, so happy. let's stay in touch to do that, definitely. Yeah, that would, and then the other side is, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so let's let's chat for. Let, we have we're doing maybe like five more minutes left. A couple. I want to do kind of a rapid fire on two pieces. First is, um, you have this clubhouse that happens every week about sci-fi. Fifty thousand people come and listen. Do you hang out with amazing sci-fi authors, authors like Neil Stevenson and Kim Stanley Robinson and stuff? Could you tell us maybe like 
uh, a like why you do it and b like is there like you know one or two like cool learnings that you've had from that on like how sci-fi impacts reality or something well I, we spend a lot of time thinking about um what science fiction is which is to think about the science part of this as a um as a character right that you have human beings then you have a scientific discovery or a scientific you know invention or going to another planet or something and that the humans interact with each other and the science so if you think about you know again old school texts like frankenstein is a science fiction or you know 20,000 leagues under the sea those are kind of adventure stories with science in something like neil stevenson um the new book, the name of which I just escaping me now, oh, but I've read Seven yeah. Eves, I've read Cryptonomicon, yeah. I've read Snow Crash. I saw Snow Crash on your on <laughs> your uh, on your <laughs> reading list. Um, uh, is about you know, like Seven Eves is a great example for Stevenson. And, um, you know, the the moon splits into seven pieces, or you know, and and how do humans deal with this, and how do you go about their lives? So what? Um, what the group generally does on Clubhouse is talk about a particular topic. So this past week we were talking about um, Jurassic Park as sci-fi, hmm. right? Which the first one was, right? Should we bring back other species? It then has turned into some other things. Um, we've talked about, um, this is a great, uh, great evening where I, I said, it's going to be about take me to your leader. Um, and why when aliens leave, they always like, take me to a leader. And so Eric Weinstein came on that day and he was hilarious. Like, you know, and he's sort of like anti-authoritarian the way he is. Like, why do we assume that UFOs are going to come to our leader when our leader doesn't even want us to know there are UFOs, right? So we have these incredible conversations about some sort of aspect of what brings us together about science fiction, which is aspirations for a better world. Um, fears of dystopia, um, fears of social fabric breaking apart. Um, what do people wear? Why don't you have babies in kindergartens on spaceships? <laughs> you know, all sorts of fundamental questions about how we imagine what our future is. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like um, you take like a given yeah, it's like a almost like a theme that goes across lots of sci-fi. Take me to your leader, or or others, and you say, okay, here's this theme. Let's kind of explore it uh, from a bunch of different sci-fi lenses. Um, Correct. That's we, interesting. So, yeah, and so um, Jim Green, who's a former NASA scientist, um, he comes. He's a regular on the show. We talk about like we had a kind of a goofy show recently. Like, what would what does Mars smell like? <laughs> Right. And part of the fact is we don't know because smell isn't something that are that NASA really wants to explore mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of different reasons. Like we know what it feels like. We know what it looks like. We know the gases, but nobody ever equipped the Mars rover rover with something that would be able to tell us what it smells like. Yeah. Do you have I mean, that's interesting. And do you think I guess a thing that I kind of believe is that we don't have enough near-term utopic science fiction that we need stuff that shows us what a positive world looks like in 10 25 50 years i think we have a lot of stuff that's more dystopic dystopic and stuff that's like a little bit more out there um is there either a book that you can think of that's like oh no this is a nice near-term non-fiction to 10 to 20 years from now that we can like point at and actually move in that direction or or if not do you share that desire to have like a thing that we can point at 15 years from now to say let's go towards that I think Andy Weir's The Martian is actually a pretty good version. Um, you know, we get a lot of pushback about colonization, what it would mean to colonize Mars and all sorts of things. And, you know, people like to dunk on Elon Musk. I like the idea. I like the idea of going to Mars only if only because it gives us all a common person, what uh, purpose, whether we should or not, whether we should be feeding the hungry or not, you know, these are important questions. But as human beings, that's been our impulse, mm -hmm. right? That's been our impulse is to, you know, in the Star Trek, go, go, go where no man has gone before, or no, no human or no individual has gone before. And, you know, Star Trek is a great example of optimism, yeah. right? You know, it's, 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 you know, like, oh, this is a cool new place. Yes, the guy in the, in the red outfit is going to be killed there. But besides that, it's going to be really Seems interesting. Nice. And we're yeah. going <laughs> to learn a lot. Exactly. 
Yeah, I like that. I think, and I, and I, I kind of agree that the Martian is of. I think that a lot of near term um science like u- utopic science fiction it's, it's like still based in the other and there's something about science fiction still based in the the now that that i'm i'm curious about as a as as we try to determine these um, optimistic futures have you okay, so- read um wait one more thing have you yeah. read uh, or you watched um severance the severance no. show oh no. you need to watch that that's okay. the there's a, amazing probably one of the smartest most interesting programs on TV, but it's science fiction. And the premise is that you have something, there's something in your brain, if you choose it, that severs your brain between your work day and your home day. So, you know, the people that have done this go to work and they get in this elevator and they have no idea who they are. And they spend the day at work and they, you know, have their work day and then they go up the elevator and go home and they have no idea what they did. So you, it is completely severed lives and what opportunities and fears and problems arise from that but you you need to go see it i just i just googled it and it has a 98 percent on rotten tomatoes and oh. so i'm i'm sold so the, I'll, I'll check it out brilliant. soon and yeah. let you know when i do um well that thank you i think we should wrap but um thank you okay. so much hollis and i think for our listeners a um a, if you want to go to university of utah it sounds like there's cool humanity yes. stuff happening there um and, and um so that is one good place the other thing is you could check out hollis on twitter she's at anecdotal a-n-e-c-d-o-t-a-l um so if you want to look at and understand how yeah the 19th century informs the 21st century or how we're doing standardizations of society or how to take a humanities lens on tech those are good uh, places to check her out is there any other final thing that you want to say to our listeners um before we leave hollis well, no, this has been delightful. I will say that the my handle, anecdotal, has to do with I am going to win the Nobel Prize in economics someday for quantifying anecdotal value. You know, when you hear a story and it's a story that changes everything for you, how does that work? And what exactly is an anecdote that does that? And what is the value of having a really good one? Ooh, that sounds so juicy. And uh, we'll leave that for our listeners to to DM her with that question. Um, Well, thank you so much, Hollis. uh, And thank you, you everybody, for listening. Goodbye. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Reese Lindmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thank you so much.